This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating July 4th all show long, our special July 4th edition. And we can't think of any better way to celebrate America than to report from the celebrations that mint new American citizens. Our crew attended a naturalization ceremony in Memphis, where more than 70 people from 30 different countries became American citizens. And we were blessed to talk to many of them. Let's go to Alex Cortez and hear from the people he met there. The first person I talked to was a guy named Wilson Echo, a Nigerian immigrant who ended up in all places in Paragold, Arkansas. Wilson told me that he actually had a pretty good scrap metal business in Nigeria. That is until the government forced him to shut it down and how they'd often kidnap and assassinate people who'd speak out against them. And so I was curious, given his success in Nigeria, what was he thinking about work for in America? Was he concerned about it? And what was his very first job here? I came here at 2006, September 15th, actually. Mm-hmm. Then the next day, that was on Wednesday, the next day I was already, I, I had a, my first job. What was it? I started with the roofing, the uh, building then. Do you remember what you were paid with that first roofing job? Oh, <laughs> it's uh, one of our church members. He actually, I was so happy, you know, I worked out every day. He gave me $100. He took us to dinner. You know, he bought me some pants and shoes. You know, <laughs> I was like, wow, $100? That's you know? a lot. <laughs> like this. Holy cow. <laughs> well, the guy I featured on our show, he um, he came over here as a dishwasher. And he, his first job here was as a dishwasher the next day, making $2 an hour. Wow. He was so happy. And I'm like, I'm literally making more than 99% of the people of Pakistan right. at this. But wow. I mean, $100 is incredible right. oh, for your yeah. first day of work. Right. Yeah. He, he uh, he was so thrilled by the things I did that day. You know, I put shingles on my head, carried up to the stairs, you know, to the roof. He said, can I do that again? I put it on my head again, climbed without holding it, you know. So came back down, then put a bucket of nails on my head without touching it, climbed up to the roof again, <laughs> came down. He said, wow, do you know that you can make money doing this just alone? <laughs> so he was so thrilled, you know, by the things that I was doing, you know. Gosh, I would be pretty scared <laughs> to go up a roof with a bucket of nails on my head. And this is also one of the great untold stories about churches helping out new immigrants, as we'll hear more throughout this feature. So Wilson was fortunate to receive a lot of love in Arkansas, but did he face any discrimination? I have not witnessed a that much people say you know especially Perigold they said why where in the world why did you end up in Perigold why are you living there but personally I've not witnessed you know things like that you know I have met great people at the church you know school and workplaces you know not that you can see some but that one is everywhere in the world you know you can meet some bad people but when one or two people, uh, you know, they they don't agree with you or they have some character or attitude, then you don't count it as yeah. being bad. Yeah. You get what I mean? So, yeah, I, I, I would say that I, I have had a great and will continue to have great uh, people around me. And to close, I asked Wilson what he's doing for work right now. I'm still... 
in the process in my school, uh, going to school and uh, you know to be a nurse. Oh, cool! Right, they, but uh, I'm a welder, a painter. You know, what makes they, you want to be a nurse? Oh, to help people. I love seeing people happy. You know, especially when you are able to help them in their need. Hearing something like that will just lighten up your day. I next spoke with an Indian immigrant named Robbie and her daughter Malika, who was being naturalized that day. And when Malika was three years old, their family moved to America. And I asked Robbie why. I did come because I wanted my kids to grow up in a free country yeah. that was more open. How was so it not things. free in India? It is free, but the ty- place I come from is Kashmir. Okay, got it. Well, tell, so I guess for folks you who don't know, tell, tell them about Kashmir. Well, it, it's, it's difficult to say much about it. There's a little bit of a civil war going on there. Yeah. It's kind of scary to let kids grow up. I guess that's what it is. I guess I'm saying something too political. Is that right? No, no, no. no. It's all right. Do you just see a lot of violence? I mean, around yes. you? Yes. Uh... Yes. We were scared to raise kids there. A little civil war is a little bit of an understatement. Kashmir is a disputed area among India, Pakistan, and China, with India and Pakistan declaring war against each other several times over it. And between 50 to 100,000 people have died in the conflict, with the exact number being unknown because of how many people have disappeared. I next spoke with Malika, who's now 18 years old. I'm in college right now, and I want to serve in the military for a couple years after, and maybe go to law school. Um... I really love this country, and I feel like it's done a lot for me, and I want to give back in like whatever way I can, and I know that sounds a little silly, but I also, like, growing up, my dad every day was basically like, Malika, you have to love this country, but you also have to, like, be brave enough to criticize it, to, like, change it, to, like, you know, know what's good, what's bad, what needs, like, where the gap is, because, like, this country has so much potential. What do you want to do in the military? Uh, hopefully become an intelligence officer, but you don't really get to pick. Yeah. It's like whatever the army needs. What does um, this day mean to you? It didn't really hit me until last week. And like, I kind of started crying the other night because I was like, wow, it's a big day. Because like, I've always felt like I belong because I came here when I was three. And I've never really felt like I was an American, but like to have it on paper, to like be able to vote, I'm so excited to be able to do that. Oh my goodness, you're listening to three unique voices. Wilson Echoes, my goodness, just thrilled to make $100 in a day, plus dinner. And by the way, plus some clothes and some shoes. The generosity of Americans, not nearly reported on enough. That's what we do here on this show is tell you what I think you already know about your own country, but it never hurts to hear about it from other people. And my goodness, listening to Robbie understate what was going on in Kashmir, she said it was hard to raise kids there. You bet. And my goodness, young Malika, I really love this country and I want to give back in any way I can. She said about her desire to serve in the U.S. military. When we come back, Our celebration of America continues here on the 4th of July, here on Our American Story. And we continue with Our American Stories in our special 4th of July edition, celebrating America through celebrating new American citizens. And let's return to Alex's reporting from a naturalization ceremony 
in Memphis, Tennessee. I next spoke to someone for a longer period of time, and this guy actually took part in the formal naturalization ceremony, and in a way that most of us might see as a small thing, but not to him. Isaac James. All right, Isaac. Oh, yeah, you did the pledge, right? I did. I did. How did you get chosen for that? Uh, one kid got nervous and said no, so I was up next. Yeah. <laughs> you were just sitting right next <laughs> to him? Yeah, I was sitting right next to him. She asked, and I was like, why not? Why are you nervous? Why was I nervous? No, why weren't you nervous? Oh, I, it's something very exciting. It's an exciting day. Yeah. Uh, so the Pledge of Allegiance is something very significant to the United States, and I feel as if to say it means that I'm officially a part of the United States, and so I'm very excited to say it. Where are you originally from, Isaac? Kenya. Okay. And how did you get over here? Uh, we came over as refugees, and so I was actually born in a refugee camp in Kenya. Uh, my family is from Sudan, and okay. due to the Civil War in Sudan, we had to seek refuge in Kenya. And so we came over in 2001. How old so. were you? I was born? four. Okay. Four. So you, do you not really remember? I don't remember much of it. Um, I can uh, I have pictures in the back of my head about um, just sort of the atmosphere of it, but I don't really know in depth of what uh, that area consisted of. Yeah. But. Can you tell me any more about the pictures in your head? From uh, well, pretty much um, I picture myself uh, just being out um, in the refugee camp, and I remember the huts and everything. And as a kid, I know I remember, you know, walking around naked and just playing <laughs> around, you know, just doing kids' things and uh, just playing soccer and hanging out with uh, all the refugee children from different countries um, in that, that one refugee camp. That actually, you know, kind of must have been cool. What's, what's so funny about life is if that's where you grew up and yeah. you were born, you have no context yeah, no. for what the rest of the world exactly. is like. Kind of talk about that. Exactly. The context? Yeah, yeah. Just um, how you, you have no context that, you know, other people grew up in a different way. Yeah, you know, yeah. You don't. You don't. You know. Yeah. So that's all I knew. Um, and just that area and my surroundings, right, that's all I knew that the word was. And so <clears throat> coming to the United States, I mean, the United States has way more than what refugee camp in Kenya has. And so it, it was a culture shock. It was a, a society change. Um, it was just something different and something new, something exhilarating that I never really experienced. Um, and I grew up in the United States, and so I've become really become accustomed to the American way of life. Um, so that's very exciting. Where did you guys move to in the U.S.? We moved um, so through the United Nations. Um, we were relocated in Memphis. Oh, really? Yeah, so the U.N. relocates refugees in different parts of the world, and we were relocated in Memphis. Do they know why Memphis for you was just No luck. idea. I guess just luck. Very luck. So the United Nations played a role. Did they help set up housing, or where did you guys kind of live, or how did, you know, tell me about how your parents yeah, so the, kind of started their life yeah, here. Yeah, the U.N. relocates, and then we got involved with Catholic Charities, uh-huh. and um, they really became our foundation for the first three to six months. Um, they, the one, they were the ones that took my mom and our family to our um, health appointments. So we, they took us to the doctors. Um, they got us to our appointments with uh, immigration. And so they're the ones that really, um, really set our foundation here on the United States and made sure that uh, where we were at the moment was stable enough yeah. to where they could um, leave us on our own and we could become independent. Yeah. So. And you were fine after six months? You were stable enough to go off on your own? And well, yeah, after six months, uh, they expected us or my parent, my mom, to have a job and sort of uh, have that income to where she could um, pay for the rent and utilities and stuff like that. Um, but they, they continue to check, check up on us after that just to make sure that um, we were becoming accustomed to the American way and we were developing in our English and doing well in our schools. Yeah, well, your English was great. Uh, yeah. T- do you remember what your mom's first job was when she came here? She actually, by trade, she's a carpenter by trade. Your so mom? in Africa, yeah. So in Africa, she did carpentry. When she came over, 
Um, she did carpentry as well, but she's also a cleaning lady. Uh, my mom is, isn't the most literate individual uh-huh. uh, due to the fact that she didn't um, advance far enough in, uh, in high school or middle school. And so um, the best job she could get was, you know, in her trade and then cleaning, yeah. uh, which didn't require much um, literacy. Well, she's got to be immensely proud how literate you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She, she's... Uh, she believes in the American dream, and so she pushes me and her other four kids to uh, take advantage of the opportunity we have, and that's our goal, to take advantage. Are female carpenters more common in Africa than here? Um, I mean, you yeah. must know how rare it is yeah, here. It's very rare here, very rare here. But in Africa, um, carpentry is one of those things that is a necessity. Yeah. And when you talk about job opportunities that are in these areas, carpentry is um, one that that is an opportunity Um, and so she took up that as a trade and really just honed in her skills and developed what are you doing right now Isaac I'm in school okay I'm in school so I went to evangelical Christian school uh, in Cordova Tennessee I graduated there went to Jackson State Community College for three years got my associates then I'm going down to Rollins College in Orlando Florida to get my bachelor's Oh, man, so, Rollins is in, uh, what's the town, Winter Park? Winter Park, oh, yeah, beautiful, so beautiful city. Have you beautiful been there? City. I have not. I've seen, oh, I've seen, so lucky, I've seen images, and the images are good enough for me. <laughs> man, one of the best places in this yeah, country. I'm excited about That's it. That's cool. Um, what do you want to do for work? Uh, I'm a business major. Okay. And so I really hope to go back and impact the area with what I've learned in the business field. In Here in Memphis? The United States. Yeah, in Memphis, United States in general. Um, and really just take back the skills that I have and develop uh, that third world economy. Um, and at the end of the day, if I could get a position with the United Nations um, and they have like an economic development uh, department, and I would love to be a part of that um, and really just give my life to serving those that are in refugee camps because I've been there, I've experienced it, my mother has experienced it, and we know just just sort of the atrocities that the individuals in those camps have experienced, and so they need hope, and they need to be given hope, and if I can be a part of that, that's that's okay with me to give my life to that, and so that'd be exciting. you're trying to forward for what the yeah. ended for you. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely. beautiful, Isaac. Yeah. Thank you. How are you celebrating today? How am I celebrating today? Um, I have work at 4 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, what's your work today? I work at Chickasaw Country Club. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. What kind of work are you doing? I am a uh, busboy. Okay. Um, so I, I clean up after uh, when individuals get done with their meals. Yeah. Um, and I also just do general labor around the area. Tell me about that experience. What have you learned from doing it? And I, I used to be a caddy at a country yeah. club, so I, yeah. I, I know the service industry. Uh-huh. I mean, talk about what you've learned from it. Yeah, like... like being in the service industry is very humbling, um, very humbling. Um, I've enjoyed it in the fact that I've made new friends and, um, and I've really developed my selfless servitude. Um, and a lot of times people look at those jobs as, um, as something that to look down upon because, you know, they're, they're yeah. service. You know, they're, they're busboys. They're doing the dirty work. But at the end of the day, it's those people... Um, that are willing to uh, serve others that keeps the world going, that keeps yeah. uh, the economy, that keeps the society going. Yeah. And so I'm very proud um, and honored to be a part of that. And what a voice, what a story. Isaac James came here when he was four years old. Luckily for him, he didn't have a lot of memories of that camp. 
I can only imagine. No, actually, I can't imagine. And my goodness, once again, churches playing a role. The United Nations, of course, getting the family to Memphis. But there's Catholic Charities to put bodies on this family. Six months worth, and even more. As he noted, Catholic Charities was there even after the six months of support. He said his mother believes in the American dream. And my goodness, Isaac, studying business, asked what he was going to do to celebrate his newfound citizenship. He said, I'm going to work. Not Disney World, folks. Going to work at a country club where he's a busboy. And by the way, serving humbly and gratefully as a busboy. I want to read to you the oath, by the way, that everybody swears as a citizen here in this country. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by the law, that I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by the law, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. Isaac James's story, our celebration of the 4th of July, continues here on Our American Story. And we continue with our American stories in our special July 4th edition, celebrating America through celebrating new American citizens. And now let's return to Alex's report from a naturalization ceremony in Memphis, Tennessee. I next spoke to a brother and sister duo named Jose and Maria Garcia, originally from Guanajuato, Mexico, where their dad was a farmer. And I asked them why they came here. Here, you know, you got an opportunity to grow and try to be somebody. In the, and over there, you're stuck with it. If you're going to farm, you can make enough to just live day by day. But you have no future. And then if you ever have family, it's going to be the same process. And, like, because over there, I feel like it's just so hard to go anywhere, you know, staying at a farm. Because whenever you do have a good crop, they don't pay you good for it. And when the crop is high, you don't have enough crop to sell, you know. So I think it's just... It's just so hard to make a living over there. Now, it turned out that their family didn't get to come here all at once. And so I asked them about their arrival and how old they were. I was eight. Okay. I'm two years older than him, so I was eight. And then, and then my dad had come here way before we did, so he would just go back and forth. So we didn't see him all the time. Did he ever tell you stories of when he was here alone or how much he was living on when he was over here? I don't know how much he was living on, but, I mean, he just tells how, he basically, all he did was work. That's all he did when he was here by himself, because he would go to work from, pretty much from sunrise to sunset, and then go home, or go, like, they would go to Walmart once a week, get the lunch, it was just a bunch of guys living together, they pretty much did the same thing. It was them here and their families over there. I think with him, the hardest thing was leaving us. You know, he would go back three months, come back six, make enough money to go back another three months. Because, you know, he was supporting a family and then thinking about going back three months without, you know, 
you would farm but only make enough to go live but you know you always be thinking about what if one of the guys in the family gets sick or something you know he has to have enough money to cover that the expenses and all this so it was hard for him leaving us I think and it was hard for my mom you know staying over there and taking care of us while he was here but she would be sending money back you know once a week uh, a certain amount of his paycheck you know he would send it back home and try to save the other one forever whenever he did go and you know just making that trip every year gets expensive this traveling expenses thanks to his sacrifice we're here so we're like you know we need to take advantage of it because you know how many people would would die for having the opportunity to come to this to the place you know because it's a great place to be now that we're all here we all we've been sticking like a family pretty good so we've all worked better to you know if one of us gets a little money we try to help all the rest of them so that's how we've been but yeah we always thank him for you know the sacrifice he did because it was a big one <laughs> and last i spoke with a guy from pakistan named mohammed and he told me that he came here for more opportunity and i was curious what opportunity has he had here that he didn't have over there well, I, um, I'm a physician by profession, and yes, Pakistan do have excellent physicians over there, but yes, there are the training opportunities are limited over there. So for me, it was a, an excellent chance to come and pursue that and to be more uh, you know, helpful in, in terms of serving humanity, getting better trained. And when we think about immigration, we often think of low-skill immigrants and not high-skill folks like Mohammed, who already are things like physicians. And this day was also his graduation from his residency in family medicine. And Mohammed was going on to a fellowship in geriatrics, specializing in helping older folks. And then he said this. There are several things that you cannot say openly, like, you know, when it comes to expressing your views about anything, may it be religion, may it be people... You have to be very cautious about what you're saying because, you know, because of the poor law and order situation over there, you can't take a risk your life. But here, as long as you're not, uh, you're obeying the laws, you can express yourself. So that's what I like about it here. Mohammed briefly mentioned the freedom of religion that America has, but Pakistan and many countries do not. And I wanted to explore this more with him. There are different divisions of Islam over there, and uh, it's not that I was afraid of anything, but it's just that, uh, you know, we need to be more diverse in terms of uh, respecting other religions also. Sometimes they don't get that kind of respect over there, like other religions especially. So that is interesting to see over here that, you know, people can be from any religion and they're being, you know, uh, encouraged to practice the way they want, as long as they are not harming anyone else. And now Faith brings us her conversation with a newly naturalized citizen. What do you have for us, Faith? Yeah, I was able to speak with a woman who was from Mexico who became a citizen herself just a few years ago. But she was actually there for her mother's naturalization, who is 80 years old. My mom has been in the United States um, 12 years, 12 years. And um, recently she decided to become married. American citizen. What, um, what made the change? Why? Um, she loved the country, and she's really happy here. So she don't want to have trouble back and forth, because she, we have more family in Mexico, and she like it back and forth. So in this way, she don't have to have more issues about limited of time. So is this more emotional for you or for her, do you think? For everybody. <laughs> It was a good experience for the full family because everybody participated, even my grandbabies participate. Everybody helped her 
to learn about the questions, about everything, you know. So everybody's really excited about today's days. And she's 80? She's 80. She turned 80 last November. The first time when she went to do the test, she passed the question, the civic question. And we was everybody surprised because we was expecting she fell it. But she knew every question. She actually fell in the personal questions. So we say, how's possible? But she was so nervous, you know. But the second time was really nice and easy and she passed. So she's here. <laughs> yeah. And what was your name and what is your name? My name is Adriana Roman and her name is Graciela Carcam. Yeah. Yes. She don't have words to describe because she's still thinking this is like a dream. I don't think this happened to me, you know, but it is happening. So it's really nice. And I think it's not just my mom. All these people is here. They go through the same experience. It is a lot of work to put into to become a citizen. And now Hillsdale intern Colby brings us his story of a newly naturalized citizen. What do you have for us, Colby? It turns out he's from Kenya, which is an East African country. He was born in a refugee camp, and he really wanted to share his story with me. He was very eager and excited, and this is it. When I was coming here, I was younger, so I'm pretty sure as I was watching my parents, the process was a little longer and harder, but it got easier and easier, and we, we finally arrived. You know, it was, it was good. Uh, like what's what's going to be like the most exciting thing to be a citizen? Just thinking about how far we have come, you know, from the struggle of going out and finding food to where you could have a better job opportunities to work, and the food is right around the corner, so you have stores everywhere. Where where I'm from, stores are miles away, and no transportation. You literally have to walk. 20, 30 miles, depending on where you where you live at, you know. It's, it's, it's really, I'm really excited, you know, becoming a citizen. It's, sometimes it gets emotional that I'm here, you know. And my goodness, what storytelling. I think Garcia's mom said it best, this family from Mexico, said about her daughter, she does not have words to describe what's happening. This is a dream. And my goodness, Mohammed from Pakistan came here for more opportunity, and my goodness, what he had to say about freedom of expression. We can't forget it. As he said it, as long as you are abiding by the laws, you can express yourself. And he also talked about freedom of religion and freedom of conscience and the ability to practice your faith as you see fit or not without any repercussions, something we all take for granted here in this great country. And of course, we heard from Hamadi and the thing about how he keeps thinking about how far we've come his family having come from Kenya we're just trying to find food for the day it was an ordeal and he talked about how excited he was about his future these stories all of them great immigrant stories celebrating the 4th of July no better way to do it than hearing these voices about our great country We continue with our special 4th of July edition of Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and you've been listening to our special 4th of July edition. And here is our production team reading the Declaration of Independence, the document which made America, well, America. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all men, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their rights, it is their duty, to throw off such government, and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies. And such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance unless suspended in their operation till the assent should be obtained, and when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish their right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such disillusions to cause others to be elected whereby the legislative powers, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise. The state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states 
for that purpose, obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges' dependence on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payments of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us. For protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states. For cutting off our trade with all parts of the world. For imposing taxes on us without our consent. For depriving us, in many cases, of the benefits of trial by jury. For transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. For abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our government, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages, and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlements here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. 
We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation, and hold them, as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies, these united colonies, these united colonies, these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have the full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And great job to our entire Our American Story staff. By the way, Dr. Benjamin Rush confessed to John Adams many years later about the hushed silence that pervaded Independence Hall because all the men who signed that document knew they were signing their death warrant. Abraham Lincoln at Independence Hall, and this was in February of 1861, said, I have never had a feeling politically that did not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. And I think the most important words written about this document were uttered by Reverend Martin Luther King on July 4th, 1965 at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. He first recited the second paragraph of the document you just heard. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Then he said this, This is a dream. It's a great dream. The first thing we notice in this dream is an amazing universalism. It doesn't say some men, it says all men. It doesn't say all white men, it says all men, which includes black men. It does not say all Gentiles, it says all men, which includes Jews. It doesn't say all Protestants, it says all men, which includes Catholics. It doesn't even say all theists and believers. It says all men, which includes humanists and agnostics. He continued, never before in the history of the world has such a socio-political document expressed in such profound, eloquent, and universal language the dignity and worth of the human personality. The American dream reminds us, and we should think about it anew on this Independence Day, that every man is an heir of the legacy of dignity and worth. The Declaration of Independence celebrated here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and our next story 
Well, it's about a 17-year-old kid named Bob Heft who designed the 50-star American flag we all fly proudly to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. After learning about Betsy Ross, he probably didn't give much thought to how the subsequent U.S. flags were designed. It might seem like a no-brainer flag makers just added a new star for every new state, right? Well, it turns out not that simple. Each new flag has a very careful design, and the arrangement of the stars must be precise and symmetrical. And for the flag we know today, that arrangement was designed by a junior in high school from Ohio. It was 1958, and America only contained 48 United States. The flag at the time featured six rows of eight stars. Bob Heff's history teacher assigned a class project where each student had to bring in something they made. Bob Heft loved flags, and he loved politics. So, having been inspired by the Betsy Ross story the class just studied, and seeing the news that Alaska was poised to become our nation's 49th state, with Hawaii soon behind, Heft decided to make a 50-star flag. So, he made some adjustments to his parents' 48-star flag, brought it in, and triumphantly placed it on his teacher's desk. Here's Bob. In American history class, we had to do an outside-of-class project. We could make and do whatever we wanted. Like a science fair or something like that, you bring the project in. The Betsy Ross story uh, intrigued me. And my mom and dad, uh, they had a a 48-star flag they received as a wedding present, which, of course, meant a lot to them. Well, I took a scissors and cut it up. Heft's mother walked in from the kitchen and found him cutting up their family flag and promptly began scolding him. She told his father when he got home, and Heft received another tongue lashing. I had always been in the Boy Scouts, and I had always been patriotic, Heft told the Lancaster Eagle Gazette in 2007. They wanted to know why I would turn on the flag. I had never sewn in my life. I watched my mom sew, but I'd never sewn. And since making the flag of her country, I've never sewn again. So anyhow, we get to class. I had my flag on the teacher's desk. And the teacher said, what's this thing on my desk? So I got up and I approached the desk and I'm shaking like a leaf. And he said, why you got too many stars? You don't even know how many states we have. And uh, he gave me the grade of a B minus. Now, that, a B-minus isn't that bad of a grade. However, uh, the friend of mine, Jim, he picked up five leaves off the ground. He's taping these leaves down to the notebook and the labeling, elm, hickory, maple. And the teacher gave him the grade of an A. I was really, I was, I was upset. The teacher said, if you don't like the grade, get it accepted in Washington, then come back and see me. I might consider changing the grade. Bob arrived home that day with his class project. And I had it in a plastic bag, and I threw it on the sofa. My mother came in. She said, supper's ready. I said, I'm not hungry. She said, what's wrong? I said, and I never talked about a teacher. I said, this stupid teacher gave me a B minus on the flag. And then she really hacked me. I said, that's more I'd have given you, because she was really dead set against this. Two years later. I'd written 21 letters to the White House, made 18 phone calls. Now, you can imagine when my mom got the phone bell. What's this number? I said, well, Mom, that's the White House. So anyhow, I uh, got this call, and it said, now, the President of the United States is calling you later on today. 
Well, at that time, Eisenhower was president, and he comes on the phone, and he says, is this Robert G. Heft? And I said, yes, sir, but you can just call me Bob. And he says, I want to know the possibility of you coming to Washington, D.C. on July 4th for the official adoption uh, of the uh, new flag. Bob received this call from President Eisenhower at his new place of employment. Here's what happened next. Well, I've been at this company 11 days. I said, well, wait a minute. My boss is standing here. I reached down, pushed the red button on the phone, put the President of the United States on hold. What are you doing? I said, I've got to talk to him. He said, you just put the President of the United States on hold. I said, he wants me to come to Washington. He said, well, tell him you'll be there. I said, look, I don't have any sick leave. I don't have any vacation. Because you know your first job out of high school, you don't want to mess up and just lose it. And he said, get him back on the phone. We'll work out the details. We'll charge it off to executive leave or something. But get him back. He was really upset. And we did a lot of military contracts. I think they probably thought, here's this kid that's been working there for 11 days is going to mess up future contracts, uh, you know, uh, putting the president on hold. So I picked up the phone, put the white button, put the phone up and said, uh, Dwight, are you still there? Because, you know, I didn't know how you properly address it. And, and they're, they're cracking up. Oh, my Lord, here's Bob talking to his buddy Dwight and stuff. Years following his talk with Dwight, Bob preserved this historic moment and paid a visit to his old teacher. And so uh, I have the grade book. It's encased in plastic. It's kept in a bank. My teacher, he said, I guess if it's good enough for Washington, it's good enough for me. I hereby change the grade to an A. Decades after, Heft inspired people young and old with his follow your dream story. He became a high school teacher, college professor, and a seven-term mayor of Napoleon, Ohio. He spoke extensively, as many as 200 engagements a year, and visited the White House 14 times under nine presidents. Heft died on December 12, 2009 at the age of 68, but his legacy survives every time we fly his 50-star creation. And if the U.S. ever adds a 51st state, Heft's got that flag covered too. Back in 1958, he designed a 51-star version that uses six rows of stars, alternating between rows of nine and eight. This would make Heft the only person to design two United States flags. Bob said in 2007, an idea doesn't do any good if you don't pursue it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. This is 
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We tell stories about everything here on this show, from sports to arts and from business to history. And this story, well, it's the latter. It's history. In the nation's capital, the sun glitters on stone monuments to our first president, George Washington, and our third, Thomas Jefferson. John Adams, the second president of the United States, was every bit as brave as the former and as brilliant as the latter, but there is no such monument for him. Yet no one, not even Washington or Jefferson, did as much to convince the colonies to break from England. Perhaps this is fitting because stone is cold and he was anything but. Alas, we must see that the United States alone serves as the proper living monument to this intense, cranky, warm heart on his sleeve founding father. What we are about to do now is precise. Instead of telling the all-encompassing story of John Adams, we are going to dial it in on one specific moment in his life, one that best captures this man's humanity and ideals more than any other. And as we will soon learn, Adams himself will agree with our selection. Here to give us a quick overarching Reader's Digest-like version of Adams is none other than author and historian David McCullough, the man who's written the definitive biography of John Adams, the book in which HBO based its 2008 award-winning miniseries. Here's McCullough answering the question, what event most personified the life and character of John Adams? I think it's the his defense of the uh, British soldiers in the Boston Massacre trial. That's where you see what that man's made of. Here was a man who was on the political rise. He was brilliant, he was well-read, he was tenacious, he was a very skillful practicing lawyer, and young still. And then the soldiers were captured and they were, everybody in the whole Commonwealth were looking forward to having them executed but they had to be represented in the trial and no one would represent them. No one would defend them. And Adam said, if we really believe that everybody deserves uh, legal defense in a trial, we better live up to what we say we believe. I'll defend them. And he did so certain that it was gonna ruin any ambitions he had to play a part. And he had a terrific wife. He's the only founding father, most people don't know this, but I think it's so important. The only founding father who never owned a slave as a matter of principle. And his wife felt the same way. She saw that slavery was a sin, evil, unjust, un-American. And they never changed in that point of view whatsoever. Let's now take a deep dive into the story of John Adams and his legendary defense of the British soldiers at the 1770 trial of the Boston Massacre. Here's Greg Henry. It takes slightly more than four decades from the first rumblings of discontent for the 13 loosely aligned colonies comprising New England to be transformed into one of the largest and most prosperous nations on earth. It starts with a simple idea that all men deserve to be treated equally and becomes the great experiment that will change the world. 
But before the anger of colonial Americans boils over into the most epic of revolutions, it begins as a daily struggle. In all 13 colonies under British rule, at the epicenter of the struggle is the seaport city of Boston. By 1760, 130 years after being founded by the Puritans, Boston is thriving. While in theory, its commerce is regulated by the British trade laws, in fact, these laws are rarely enforced. That changes in 1761 with England's economy struggling thanks to the 10,000 British troops protecting their American colonies from the French. Here's historian Andrew O'Shaughnessy and screenwriter of the 2008 HBO miniseries John Adams, Kirk Ellis. The reason that they taxed America was because of the French and Indian War. It so bankrupted the British Treasury that there had to be ways in which they could make up for this lost revenue, and they decided to tax the colonies. But, as they've always done, Americans ignore the taxes. So Britain takes action. New tax laws and anti-smuggling searches turn revenue collection into combative encounters. Here's historian Andrew Nelson. And this includes something called the Writs of Assistance, which is essentially a warrant where the British can search anyone's property freely. The British Army is no longer in America to protect colonists. It has become an occupying force. Along with invasive laws allowing search and seizure, England responds with the Stamp Act of 1765, a broad tax targeting every American colonist. The Stamp Act required that all official correspondence from newspapers to documentation, even playing cards, had to be produced on paper that bore an official stamp purchased from a customs agent. Even though it isn't described as a tax, it's of course a tax. And this leads to opposition. When most people think of the Founding Fathers, they envisioned wig-wearing politicians debating on the floor of some legislative body. But they in fact did their organizing in a bar, a tavern in Boston called the Green Dragon. The Boston Tea Party was planned here, and Paul Revere was sent from the Green Dragon to Lexington on his famous ride. It is here where their fight begins. Not yet for independence, but for the equal treatment under the law as the British citizens they believe they are. Behind the power of these laws, English customs agents begin ransacking homes and businesses. A group of patriots formed to fight British oppression, most notably the Stamp Act. They call themselves the Sons of Liberty. Sons of Liberty is an association of men who are looking to prompt situations that will lead to a disturbance that will force the attention of the Crown. The Sons of Liberty weren't just in Boston. They were very quickly organized and strewn throughout the original 13 colonies. The founder of what could be called General of the Sons of Liberty is John Adams' cousin, 43-year-old Samuel Adams. Here's colonial historian Marvin Kitman. Sam Adams was a real rebel with a cause, and the reason for it was in his personal life. He had been a failure in everything that he did until the revolution. 
His father gave him a lot of money to start a business. He lost all the money. He's one of these people who become obsessed with a cause and just put their personal life aside. If Sam Adams is the general of the Sons of Liberty, his colonels are John Hancock, the wealthiest man in Boston and the second wealthiest in the colonies, and goldsmith Paul Revere. Legend relegates Revere as a mere lookout who shouts from the top of a horse. But Paul Revere is both a salesman and a strategist, a multi-talented patriot who organizes tough men into a force for liberty. As the atmosphere in Boston turns incendiary, Paul Revere leads something of a guerrilla army that uses tactics of fear and violence intent on intimidating the king's tax collectors out of existence. What is known as the Stamp Act riots spread quickly throughout the 13 colonies. Here's historian extraordinaire Tony Williams. They were tearing down the stamp collectors' homes. They were burning these customs officials and the royal governor in effigy. And so there's a great deal of popular enthusiasm and even violence. The Stamp Act riots renders the man enforcing British rule in Massachusetts, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, powerless to collect taxes. With no colonial taxes being collected, the British Parliament is in a state of panic. Here's historian David Eisenbach. You have to remember at Parliament, they're dealing with an empire that is stretching all around the world. If they allow the abuse of tax collectors in Boston, that would encourage lawlessness all around. They decided we've got to make an example by putting more troops in Boston to kind of clamp down on the troublemakers. And when we come back, we'll continue with this story of John Adams and the Boston Massacre trial. And on this day in history, in 1826, John Adams died. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to study all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. When we come back, we continue with the story of the Boston Massacre trial and in the end, a story about the character of one of our nation's founders, John Adams. American stories, and we return where we last left off. Boston is under military occupation by the British troops trying to clamp down on colonial troublemakers. Here's Greg Hengler. Oh, there's no turning back for me. England dispatches two military regiments to Massachusetts from New York to keep order, adding fuel to the fire. Boston is now under military occupation. there's no turning back now. In 1768, four more regiments sailed from England to Boston. By 1770, 2,000 British troops occupied this city of 15,000. For Paul Revere, the occupation of British military presents an opportunity. He creates a propaganda piece he calls 
Landing of the troops. As it travels throughout the colonies, so does the fear of military occupation. With a British army camp in the center of their city, Bostonians have a constant reminder of their own repression, while rank-and-file British soldiers start to wonder, who has it worse? Here's historians H.W. Brands, Andrew Nelson, and Denver Brunsman. These British soldiers are a long way from home, young men who are frightened. Most of them have hardly the slightest idea of what the political debate is. They're told by their officers, you need to keep peace. For many of the soldiers arriving, America had been a faraway place that you read about in the newspaper. But when they get there, they see what all the fuss was about. This really is a suggestion of a much better life than America. So desertion becomes a serious problem. One hallmark of a professional army at this time is a high state of discipline physical, corporal punishment for various crimes. And the punishment of choice was the lash. Punishment for desertion could bring up to 250 lashes. Contrary to popular history, the derogatory term of lobster back for British soldiers doesn't have anything to do with the red coats they wear. The term comes from the welts and the scars many men have on their backs from being whipped. The flame that will ignite the American Revolution is lit on Thursday morning, February 22, 1770, when, according to the Boston Gazette, a barbarous murder was committed on the body of a young lad of about 11 years of age. Christopher Sider is a young rebel in a Sons of Liberty offshoot group known as the Liberty Boys. So Sam Adams' idea to protest the taxes is to get all of the colonies together to join in on a boycott against English merchants. The Sons of Liberty proclaims that no British goods will be sold. Not everybody adheres to that boycott. Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty are not above marking that place with manure on the door. They're not above breaking the windows of that place. That dark morning, Cider and a crowd of 60 young men marched defiantly through Boston's cobblestone streets with a cart overflowing with rotten fruit used to mark the windows of those merchants who refused to respect the boycott of all British goods. These British sympathizers are known as loyalists or Tories. Walking down the street, the mob sees Ebenezer Richardson, who was an informant to the customs house about uh, various merchants who were not paying their taxes. Get up! Stopping in front of Ebenezer Richardson's house, the young men begin throwing rubbish into his yard. The rubbish is thrown back by Richardson's wife, Kezia, but soon, Rocks are hurled, and the Richardsons retreat into their secure home. As the intensity grows, windows are shattered, and an egg hits Kezia. Richardson grabs his musket loaded with swan shot and stands defiantly musket high at his second-story window. He fires once. It is intended to be a warning, he later swears, but Christopher Sider is hit in his chest and abdomen by 11 pieces of shot the size of large peas. Most people believe the Revolutionary War is triggered by a shot from a British soldier on Lexington Green, but the conflict is actually set into motion five years earlier 
when Liberty Boy Christopher Sider becomes the first American martyr to die for the cause of freedom. There's nothing I can do. Samuel Adams made this into a huge public spectacle, and there was a great deal of anger in Boston. They stage an incredibly elaborate funeral with a bedecked coffin that gains mourners as it passes through town. Among the more than 2,000 Bostonians who attend the funeral is John Adams. Here he is from his diary. Mine eyes have never seen such a funeral. This shows that there are many more lives to be spent if wanted in service to their country. This shows, too, that the faction is not yet expiring and that the ardor of the people is not to be quelled by the slaughter of one child. It's in full view, this outpouring of sentiment over the loss of one individual who symbolizes the promise of what many people think should be an independent nation. This boy's death becomes propaganda for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. And this is like a match to light the fuse that will explode into the American Revolution. In the days that follow the funeral, tension in Boston reaches a climax. On the frigid, moonlit evening of March 5, 1770, less than two weeks after Sider's burial, an angry, boisterous, and mostly intoxicated citizen mob roamed through the snow-covered, cobbled streets, hurling insults and threats at British soldiers. Two Bostonians break into two meeting houses and begin ringing the church bells, the alarm for fire, and almost at once, crowds come pouring into the streets. The city is alive with danger. By 8 o'clock, two British soldiers are attacked and beaten. Then, a large mob of colonists, as many as 200 strong and armed with sticks and clubs, gather in front of the Custom House on King Street, guarded by a lone British sentry. The time is shortly after nine. Words are exchanged, and the sentry strikes a Bostonian with the butt of his musket, knocking him to the ground. The British want to demonstrate that we hold the power, and you guys better do what we tell you to do. Captain Preston leads out the guard. They form around the front of the customs house. And at that point, the situation escalates, and a mob starts to grow. British Captain Thomas Preston dispatches seven men to the custom house to, as he says, protect the sentry and the king's money. The more force the British bring to bear, the more radical the situation gets. The mob launches oyster shells and rocks packed in snowballs at the soldiers and dare them to shoot, yelling, fire, fire. The soldiers with muskets drawn and fixed bayonets are in a state of panic when suddenly a British private receives a severe blow to the head with a club and falls to the ground, causing his musket to discharge. In the melee, the soldiers open fire. Just days after Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We will all regret this day. And when we come back, we'll continue with the final segment of this remarkable story, and we're picking the Boston Massacre trial and honing in on this one particular point 
in John Adams' life because it reveals so much about his nature, about his character, and what he really believed in. In the end, the deep principles that helped him and so many like him formulate the founding principles of our country. Hard ones to live by at the time, though. When we continue, the life of John Adams, the Boston Massacre trial, and the story of our nation's founding here on Our American Story. Continue with the story of John Adams. Just days after Liberty Boy Christopher Sider is buried, five more American colonists join him as martyrs in the struggle for freedom. What will be known as the Boston Massacre will be the rallying cry for colonists to fight for the unalienable rights we cherish today life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Here's Greg Hengler. We will all regret this day. The Boston Massacre becomes a huge propaganda effort for Samuel Adams and the Sons of Liberty. You've got an immediately famous engraving by Paul Revere. It is one of the most inaccurate pieces of propaganda ever produced by an American press. Almost nothing in it is correct. This is treason! This is an early instance in the colonies of the power of what we now call media to shape the public opinion. Paul Revere's sensationalized engraving is considered one of the most effective pieces of propaganda in American history showing an orderly line of redcoats firing in unison into an unprovoked and unarmed crowd of patriots with blood spurting out of their bodies. Boston newspapers are quick to print and distribute Revere's version. John Adams is a short, chubby, and very pious fifth-generation descendant of Puritans who settled in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1632. After 12 years of practicing law, the 34-year-old Adams is working in his office when a prosperous merchant named James Forrest knocks on his door the day after yes. the massacre. Mr. Adams, my name is Forrest. What happened to you? With tears streaming in his eyes, as Adam writes years later, the loyalist desperately asks Adams to defend Captain Preston and his men against the murder charges. Not even a single loyalist would take the case. No one else would plead his case. As Boston's most respected attorneys and political leaders, it would appear inconceivable that he would risk his reputation and his own safety, as well as the safety of his pregnant wife, Abigail, and their young son and future sixth president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, by agreeing to defend British men who were considered cold-blooded killers of American patriots. It will be John Adams' first murder trial. On the surface, it would appear that the distinction between the Adams cousins is made clearer when John takes the case to defend British soldiers. But behind the scenes, Samuel Adams' belief in the rights of man 
are deeper than his in-the-open, rough-and-tumble political tactics. John Adams was not eager to take the task. But Samuel persuaded his cousin on the basis of justice that these men deserved the best defense. That was an argument that could always sway John Adams. The trial in front of a packed courtroom begins on October 24th at Boston's new courthouse on Queen Street. John Adams draws upon his personal mistrust of mobs to construct a masterful defense of the British soldiers. Here's Kirk Ellis and John Adams from his autobiography and from the trial. He develops a defense that is based on the fact that this was a mob that was created and a situation of escalating violence was building. The part I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers was the most exhausting and fatiguing cause I ever tried for hazarding my popularity and for incurring suspicions and prejudices which will never be forgotten as long as the history of this period is read. John Adams' ace in the hole trials is a deathbed confession from Patrick Carr. And what was it he said? He said he fired to defend himself. To defend himself! The doctor's testimony of Patrick Carr recounting a dying man's last words would be considered inadmissible, hearsay. But puritanical thinking gives John Adams an advantage. Justice Peter Oliver and the jury accept the deathbed testimony as irrefutable since it is believed that no one would dare lie so close before stepping into eternity to face God's final judgment. In instructing the jury, Justice Oliver addresses the complexities of the case when he tells them, If upon the whole ye are in any reasonable doubt of their guilt, ye must then declare them innocent. It marks the first known time a judge has used the phrase reasonable doubt in an American courtroom. Adams' defending argument to the jury includes this statement that has echoed throughout American courtrooms for longer than two centuries. Facts are stubborn things. See, whatever our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. We, the jury... The trial of Captain Preston lasts six days, and that of his troops lasts nine. Not guilty. These will be the first criminal trials in the colony's history to extend more than a single day. Not guilty. Adam's compelling defense wins an acquittal for six of the soldiers and two are found guilty of manslaughter, for which they are branded with an M for murder on their thumbs. This session adjourned. It is not only the soldiers Adams defends, but the law itself, which must remain free from man's politics, passions, and ever-shifting beliefs. Far from ruining his career, Bostonians realize that John Adams has won a victory for the colonies. He has shown England that colonists understand what justice means. The trial solidifies John Adams as the most respected and gifted legal mind in Boston, perhaps all of the colonies. For his part, 
Adams remembers the case with pride as one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered. One, one of, of the, the most, most gallant, gallant, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life. And one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. But to put that brilliant mind to use towards American independence, Sam Adams and his Sons of Liberty must first convince him to join them in open rebellion. Because when their struggle turns to war, they will need John Adams to persuade a people to defy their king and define the ideals of freedom and liberty upon which America will be built. Let's end this story with the man who started it. Here again is historian and John Adams biographer, David McCullough. I like to give credit where credit's due. In many cases, long overdue. I felt that way with John Adams. You remember the great scene in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when the posse is chasing them? And the posse is not only keeping up with them, they're starting to gain a little bit. And one of them says to the other, who are those guys? And then they look again and they're getting closer and they're riding as well or better than Butch and Sundance are. And the other one said, who, who are those guys? And then, who are those guys? Well, that's the way I feel very often. Who were those founding fathers? And the more you know them, the better you know them, the more you realize how extraordinary what they did is because they were so human. And they had flaws and failings and had moments of gloom and despair, just like all of us. And yet they kept going. I know that it, it lifts us in spirit. It lifts us in our love of and appreciation of those to whom we owe so much, but it also lifts us in an outlook on life that, for lack of, a, of another word, I would call optimistic. Now, it's not fashionable intellectually to be an optimist, but I am, because I've seen in my work again and again and again, it works out. They do it, they get there. And if there's a problem, if there's an over, overwhelming calamity, the nation's whole security and future is at stake, we've come through it. And so when people start saying, oh, it's a oh, country's going to hell, well, sure, it always has been. And, and, uh, and, and we're doing just fine. And then when people say, well, the taxes are too high and the cost of this and these damn politicians, I say, would you rather live somewhere else? Oh, no, 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 of course not. <laughs> Aren't we lucky? Aren't we really lucky to live in this country? And isn't it wonderful sometimes to be reminded that we are a good people and we've had great people bring us to where we are? Yes, there were terrible, rotten people, of course. And there, was, there were scoundrels and scamps and crooks and murderers, but there always have been, always will be. And just don't ever let us get so down about what might be happening at the moment in the way of less than admirable human beings. But remember how many good people there are and how much progress is being made in our own time beneficial to a better life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And it's always a pleasure to hear from David McCullough talk about just about anything. And on this day in history, in 1826, John Adams died. And that's why we wanted to focus in on this one story. Because in this one story, Adams revealed his character, 
also his principles. And we can all look back at a time in our life when we were alone with our principles. Did we compromise or didn't we? Did we buck our principles and submit to authority or submit to the mob or not? And well, you have your own answers to those questions. My goodness, what John Adams did. Well, this is the man who helped forge the principles and the principles upon which his country was built. And what a great story indeed it was. Brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. John Adams died on this day in history in 1826. His story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.